When it comes to this day, Thanksgiving Day, let me ask you, what words immediately come to your mind to describe this day? I think of words like bountiful, plentiful, right? Abundance. Or if you were to think of a a visual image that actually captures all of that bounty that this day represents, what image comes to your mind? It's the cornucopia, isn't it? That horn of plenty overflowing with abundance. Uh, It was originally a a goat's horn filled with grain and flowers and fruit symbolizing prosperity. And the cornucopia originated out of Greek mythology. The horn of the goat Amathea was believed to dispense an endless supply of food, drink, and, and other riches. So when it comes to celebrations like today, uh, food is in ample supply as the center of attention, isn't it? And we must admit from the outside that some cultures do a little bit better than others when it comes to feasting. For example, when was the last time you said to someone, well, let's go out for uh, British food tonight? I mean, fish and chips doesn't seem like the fare for a lavish setting, does it? Okay, maybe, uh, you know, prime rib and Yorkshire pudding, that might work. So, anybody getting hungry yet? Uh, uh, When I think of a table spread, I think of Southern European food, such as Italian or Greek, uh, most associated, you know, with mamas who are in the kitchen all day long, producing a volume of food that an army uh, could not consume. When our mission team was in China earlier this year, uh, we had finished our training of 19 Lisu pastors over a five-day period, and we wanted to conclude that training with, with a celebration of sorts, a, a banquet, a, a feast, where we could celebrate the completion of this time, offer certificates of completion. And so we went to the uh, hotel management to kind of throw this party, and we said, can you provide the food for this feast that we want to have? And they said, well, the only way we will do it is if we have a 17-course meal. (laughs) Believe me, the food just kept on coming and coming. Well, of course, uh, most of you know that I married into a Chinese culture. My mother-in-law in in her prime was quite a good cook. And the very few times she actually addressed me in English was usually at the end of a first course. And it went like this, eat, eat some more. So food, celebration, and festival not only, I think, go together, they are vitally important to our quality of life. And I find it both interesting and wonderful that the Lord divided up the year for the Old Testament Hebrew people into festivals, opportunities to come together, to feast together, and then also take some time off work and give thanks to our Lord. Now, there are three festivals that form the Hebrew Old Testament year. Uh, They were the Passover the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And let me just remind you of the meaning of each one of those. In the first month of the Hebrew year, on the sunset of the 14th day, Passover was to begin. It was becoming commemorated with certainly the sacrifice of a one-year-old lamb. You know the significance of that, the blood that was placed on the doorposts. So when the, the angel of death came over them, they would, he would pass over uh, the Hebrew people as he was taking the Egyptian firstborn. Then on the 15th day of that month, for six days following, they were to eat unleavened bread. 
Unleavened bread symbolized the haste in which the people had to escape from Egypt uh, on their way to the promised land. So each year, the Hebrew people gather at Passover to remind themselves that this is the birth of their nation. The commemoration that is done around food so that their national identity is formed around the Passover. The second festival the people were commanded to keep was exactly 50 days afterwards. We call it what? Pentecost. That word penta, 50, 50 days. Feast of weeks is actually what that was. And this was to celebrate the bringing in of the grain harvest. Many thanks were given to the Lord for the blessings that he had given to his people. But I love the way Moses describes this in Deuteronomy chapter 16. He says, Rejoice before the Lord your God at a place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Now, you can't rejoice and have a dour celebration, can you? Uh, This whole idea is to celebrate together. God has provided his abundance and then celebrate that abundance. But make sure you include a certain group of people around the table on this day, the Lord says. Make sure that the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow are included And why is this? Because you are never to forget that you were once slaves in Egypt, when including those who could be marginalized on society, then you are reminding yourself that you were once under the oppression of someone else. And then the third festival uh, they were commanded to keep was the Feast of the Tabernacles, uh, which was coincidental with bringing in of the totality of the harvest. Uh, It says in Deuteronomy 16, the produce from the threshing floor and your wine press is to be celebrated. Now, this is the festival that uh, concludes from a series of short uh, uh, festivals or celebrations in the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month is what we would call Rosh Hashanah, the, the day of the new year. Then 10 days after that first day is the most holy day of the Jewish year, which is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, a time when you actually fasted during that period of time, confessed your sins, and a sacrifice was offered on our behalf. But then five days later, after that tenth day, they were to have a joyful celebration, this Feast of Tabernacles uh, that was to occur. And again, they were to make sure that the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widows were included in this celebration. And for seven days, this feast would occur, time off work was given, and booze would be built, tabernacles would be built as a sign that they were to remember that they were in temporary housing, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years until God brought them into the promised land. And again, Moses concludes his description of this feast in this way. For the Lord will bless you in all of your harvest, in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Celebration. Joy. Mark the moments, the scripture tells us, with this sense of God's abundant provision. In other words, I think he's saying kind of luxuriate in God's surplus that he has given us out of his generous grace. And all of these festivals really be point back to the generosity of God, that he pours this out so that we can remember all that he has given to us as a sign of the gift of grace that is ours. And one of the ways that we focus this is around the richness of what God has done for us. When I began to think about the generosity of God and the grace of God, that word richness came to my mind. And I remembered that in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this word riches six different times to reach for words to describe the abundance of God's grace to us. So let's take a look at uh, the scriptures that Paul points us to in Ephesians 
1, 2, and 3. First of all, we come to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where we read that in Him, Christ, we have redemption. We have redemption. That word redemption is mean that we have been bought with a price. We were on the slave market of sin, and God has purchased our freedom. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Our, our sin has been canceled, canceled in accordance with what? The riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us. Paul's reaching for language here to say, God hasn't doled it out in a niggardly fashion. He's just poured it out on us completely and fully. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, we read about Paul's prayer here for understanding and comprehension of the generosity of God, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know what? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, there's some dispute as to what that phrase means, the riches of his glorious inheritance. It could be that God bestows upon us a glorious inheritance, which is to see him face to face in his glorious light. Or the other is that uh, we are his inheritance, that we are his great possession. So whether God bestows his inheritance upon us or we receive, he receives us as his inheritance, we got a great thing going here, don't we, in terms of this kind of fullness And then we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, in the first three verses here, has really painted a very dreadful picture of human destiny because we are dead in our sins. That's kind of the theological equivalent to we are in deep (laughs) doo-doo. And Paul reverses his course. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. When we were dead, mercy came and he made us alive. And then two verses later in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, the consequence of God's riches is that God raised up Christ, seated him with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. To what do you compare riches? These riches of his grace. There's nothing to compare it, Paul says. There's no human analogy here that I can give you to compare the riches of what God has offered to us. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gets very personal here. He describes his own reception of grace that was a means for him to pass that on to the Gentiles. Although I am less than the least of God's people, Paul writes, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul remembers that uh, at one time he was an enemy. He was persecuting the Christian people. And he thought that the Gentiles were actually just fuel for the fires of hell because as a Jew, that's the way he viewed the Gentiles. But now he's been given grace and is to pass that grace on inclusive of all those who had been outside of the covenant of God. The unfathomable, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, verses 16 through 19, Paul just concludes with this great crescendo of this inexhaustible reservoir of God's grace with these words. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that 
you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. When I read those first three chapters over again, I had the sense that Paul wanted to say at this point, you know, at some point you just run out of human language. I just don't know how to say this any better than I have already said it. I hope you grasp the wonder of the riches of God's grace poured out upon your life and heart. It's kind of like God is being pictured as having a bank account that is an endless supply. With every debit, there is a credit. Wouldn't you love to have a bank account like that? That it just keeps overflowing but never runs out. Max Lucado shares a story that I think is a helpful image here of God's grace. He said one day while he was, uh, his daughter was in college, he got a notice from the bank that his daughter had an overdraft on her bank account. As much as he had encouraged her to monitor that account, she had not paid careful attention, so she overspent what was available. And so Max, the father, decided, well, what am I supposed to do here? Ask the bank to absorb it? Uh, not usually an option. Banks aren't usually giving away money, at least not anymore. <laughs> uh, should he phone his daughter and say, you got to cover this? Well, she knew that she couldn't cover it. That's why there was an overdraft. And though he said to himself, well, what's a father to do? Uh, he then covered the overdraft out of his own account. And then Max informed his daughter that she was overdrawn. She said uh, that she was sorry for that. Uh, she offered no deposit because she had no ability to make any deposit. Her account was zero, and so that's how much she had to offer. And so she had only one option at this point in this conversation with her dad. Dad, could you... Max interrupted her sentence. Honey, I already have. And he told her that he had met her need even before she asked for it. And I think that's the picture of God's grace. God makes provision before we even know we've needed it. I want to tell you a story. It's a story that uh, comes out of a well-known author. Her pen name was Isaac Dinesen. It's a pseudonym for the one who wrote out of Africa, Karen Blixen. And she wrote a short story called Babette's Feast. This takes us sort of back to the imagery of feasting and the fullness of this day. The setting of the story is a melancholic village in Norway in the year 1871. Babette Hersant knocked on the door of a modest cottage where two sisters, Martina and Philippa, lived. Babette had recently been a chef at Chez Anglais in Paris, but had to flee France from her after her husband and child had been murdered in the Civil War. Martina and Philippa had carried on the mission of their late father, leading a sect of believers on a joyless journey. The little sect had begun to fray since their father's death. They had become quarrelsome and even joyless, more joyless, which made the sisters' leadership even more difficult. When Babette appeared at their door and asked if she could work for them, they sensed that she had blown in the wind by the Spirit. Babette became the servant of servants in their gentle misery. Since their religion was based upon self-denial, they believed that they could eat and drink that which was fit for the spirit only if they rejected all the pleasure of food of the flesh. So Babette, the French chef, was taught to soak fish overnight and then boil it, 
Hard bread was soaked in ale, cooked for an hour, and served as hot ale bread. This was the menu every day, day in and day out, even on the Sabbath. The only contact Babette kept with her French homeland was through her cousin, who for old time's sake bought her a yearly lottery ticket. After 12 years of stay with the sisters, Babette was informed that she had in fact won the lottery. A sum of 10,000 francs was now hers, a fortune. And what should she do, she thought, with this windfall that she's received? She decided to give the gift that only she could give. She would prepare the people of this dour sect with a feast like they've never pondered that they could ever possibly enjoy. Babette sent her list of requirements to her cousin in Paris. Before you know it, two boatloads of exquisite food arrived at the village of Noray Fosberg. Squab, partridge, every fresh vegetable, exquisite pastries, fine wines, complete with table setting of porcelain and crystal. The feast would mark the 100th anniversary of the birthday of their spiritual leader. The entire congregation was invited to this feast. But they decided that they would endure the feast for the sake of the memory of their founder. But in loyalty to his memory, they swore they would not enjoy it. And so on the evening of the big event, the villagers arrived at the feast dressed in their best black. They sat down in silence at the elegant table that Babette had set for them, hands folded piously on their laps, all of them awed by the array of crystal and porcelain that had been brought from Paris. As each course was served, they received it with no sign of delight, ate with heads down, spoke to each other about how unworthy they were even to take the plainest food. But as they slurped the turtle soup and wolfed down the delicate fowl and nibbled the flaky pastries and sipped the vintage wine, their spirits began to mellow as if against their will. They began to wonder at Babette's lavish gift. They were drawn to her grace, seeing that there was something more to enjoy than to endure. They actually started to take pleasure in each other's presence. The talk took on a lighter tone. There were some smiles between bites. A woman burped modestly. An elder looked at her and said, Hallelujah. <laughs> Neighbors recalled how they mistreated each other and immediately another offered forgiveness. After coffee, the congregation left feeling lighter than when they came. They actually walked arm in arm and their slow plod turned into a skip. Babette's reckless grace had caught them off guard melted their resistance, made them feel as if perhaps, after all, in spite of their undeserving, they were worthy of even so fine a gift. Joy trickled through the crevices of their spirits when they opened themselves up to the grace of Babette's lavish gift. Two scenes bring the story to its conclusion. Outside, after the meal, the old-timers gathered around the fountain and lustily sang the well-worn songs of faith. It was a communion scene. Babette's feast opened the gates and grace stole in. Isaac Dinesen says they felt as if they had indeed their sins washed white as wool. And then the final scene occurs in the wreck of kitchen piled high with dishes. The sisters remarked to Babette that now that she had so much money, she would be returning to Paris. Oh, but no, Babette said. I have no money. I cannot go back. No money? 
But the 10,000 francs, all spent on the feast, she said. All of it on the feast, but it was too much for you to give. Babette's feast, see, is the story of grace. A gift that costs the giver everything and the recipients nothing, but changes those who receive the gift forever. For it's intended to lead us to joy. Most of us, I suspect, will be gathering around a dining room table today with more food before us than we could possibly consume, maybe at a restaurant. We'll do so with people, hopefully, that will bring us great joy as we gather together. And may what we see in that spread before us today be welcomed as a gift of grace, a sign of God's bounty and provision, not only of earthly things, but also the sign of God's generous and accepting love. Perhaps you, like me, have a bit of nagging guilt or doubt, as these villagers did, that we shouldn't be enjoying so much of God's good plenty. So I want to conclude with these words that you'll see on the screen from a devotional book, wonderful devotional book called Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. And she writes in God's voice. So take these words with you. Sometimes my children hesitate to receive my good gifts with open hands. Feelings of false guilt creep in, telling them that they don't deserve to be so richly blessed. This is nonsense thinking, because no one deserves anything from me. My kingdom is not about earning or deserving. It's about believing and receiving. Ponder that for a moment. It's about believing and receiving. When a child of mine balks at accepting my gifts, I'm deeply grieved. When you receive my abundant blessings with a grateful heart, I rejoice. My pleasure in giving and your pleasure in receiving flow together in joyous harmony. May that be the note of our day and our thanks living, as Sandy has reminded us. Let's pray together. Father God, we... Thank you for the outpouring of the riches of your grace that you lavish upon us. That you want us to just be receiving that Fort Knox of grace that you pour out upon us. We thank you for the riches. And may we take that in. And may the gift that we give you be the reception of all that you have given us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.